With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Hello and welcome to the Olive Magazine podcast. I'm Janine, Olive's Food Director, and I'll be your host for this episode. This week, digital writer Alex is just back from a trip to Utrecht and has some great tips for eating, drinking and lounging. I'll be talking to writer and Italian food expert Amico Davis and Sarah and Adam give us the lowdown on fermenting. First up, here's Alex on why Utrecht should be on your travel hit list in 2017. So Alex. Hello. I hear you have just come back from Utrecht. Yes. In the Netherlands. Yes. Uh, I know nothing about it other than the <laughs> fact that it has a university. I think the biggest yeah. in the Netherlands, but that's all I know. So, yeah. What what is it like? Okay. Well, so um, recently I was talking with our travel editor Rhiannon and about European city breaks, and I said I wanted to go somewhere, and we have a great feature called Insta Travel, and I thought this would be a really good one because she mentioned there's lots of little cafes, and yeah, again, it's like. Amsterdam, but they don't like us to say it's the little sister of Amsterdam, the people of Utrecht. <laughs> that will say it anyway. However, it, it's got that vibe, as in it's trendy, it's very cool, it's right. got the largest university in the Netherlands. So um, lots of young people come to study there yeah. and then they end up staying. So it's a real hub of like young entrepreneurs and the amount of independent cafes and bars and boutique shops is like overwhelming really mm. um so it's a bit of an unsung hero then it, yeah it really is because i think one person out of all of my friends who are all very well traveled knew what it was but yes yeah, so, because it's actually one of the oldest cities in the netherlands and it used to be um a more prominent city than amsterdam so it's what people would think of when they were thinking about trade in the netherlands yeah. and it was created when the romans made a campsite in the dom square which is where the Dom Tower, uh, which is the famous tower in uh, Utrecht, now sits. Um, and it's got all of the pretty canals of, like in Amsterdam, and they were hubs for warehouses and they had storage at water level and then the warehouses above. And it's really nice because they're now just higgledy-piggledy buildings and they're just filled with all these local businesses. Yeah. Um, it's so pretty to go in the spring um, and when you know, all the trees are out, you can sit outside and all along the canal. Where, where actually in the Netherlands is it? It's about... Well, so we flew into Amsterdam Airport. Yes. And it's yeah. actually only 30 minutes on the train. Oh, so right. it's so equidistant to the Amsterdam centre. Right. So you can either go to Amsterdam or to Utrecht. Oh, right. Okay. Um, my favourite place like, by the canal there was called Talud 9. And it was a, a wine bar and it has no wine menu, but the staff ask you for your preferences and then bring you three bottles to try, which is oh, brilliant. Wow. It's got a really buzzy vibe. So you can also, just say, I like this kind of grey. Yeah. I like this kind of exactly. texture. Yes. Oh, we brilliant. even said we'd like a, a white wine. So they brought um, like a, quite a refreshing white wine. So they brought a Reaccess Baixas. Mm. Uh, from the um, the Basque Country, and they brought an um, Alsace, yes, um, and then more like a, a more Sauvignon Blanc. So you can really choose which kind of profile you, you wow, want. Wow, it's like a restaurant without a menu. Yeah, cool. yeah, it's amazing. What about the food? Um, Any favourite cafes or anything? Um, well, there's, there, there are loads of cafes. Like it's 
because of all these young entrepreneurs and there's a lot of students mm -hmm. and um, so it lends itself really well to, yeah. to the cafes. But what I liked about it, it hasn't got that like hipstery vibe that's too cool for school. Yeah. They really, everybody was really helpful and really welcoming. And I think because it's not quite had a tourist boom yet. Mm. So, well, at least with English people. So they, nobody spoke English straight away to us, which is quite nice, actually. Mm. Um, and they were all just so willing to help. And when they found out we were there, you know, as tourists, they were telling us all about the local um, coffee. And so we went to a place called Te Coffee Bunche. <laughs> Catchy. <laughs> Catchy, yes. Um, which actually means coffee bean in Dutch, which is a, it's a very hard language to grasp. Yes, so I've, I've heard. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and they, has, they have two locations and they're very stylish zen spaces and you can, you can curl up on these basket swing chairs, which are really cool. And they use coffee from a Bocker coffee roastery in Amsterdam. And also my other favourite place was Village Coffee and Music Bar on Voorstraat, which was a really nice chilled place to hang out and serves the best coffee in Utrecht apparently. Mm. And I can vouch that it was very good. <laughs> um, Anything alcoholic? Of course, yes, yeah. Well, actually, they it was really surprising because I didn't know before I went that they have a, an undercurrent of microbreweries. So they have loads and loads of them. Um, and we tried um, a Pandora Dutch Pale Ale from, uh, Blonde from Maximus Brewery in Utrecht, which was like fruit, fruity and slightly bitter. And then also Neoboski's Sooty Otter, a great name again. Wow. <laughs> um, and that was a dark American black... Uh, Black ale style beer. Can you get these beers throughout Utrecht, or do you have to go somewhere specific to try them? Um, there's there's loads of places. There's a bar called um, Olive, Olivier, and that's in an old little castle. Oh, so, wow. But you don't realise it's it's a castle from the outskirts, but uh, from the outside. But actually, when you go in, you see all the interiors, and that's mm. near the train station. Okay. And then they've got loads of off the top of my head, I can't name them all, but I'll be writing something about Utrecht on, on olivemagazine.com. And they have um, lots of wharf, you know, in the cellars of the, the wharf side cellars of the, uh, the buildings and, uh, next to the canals. Um, and we actually had a really good selection in our hotel. It was the Mary Kay Hotel, which is a really cool, arty <laughs> hotel in a 17th century building. So that was great. What about... Um, what, what would you eat if you had to eat one thing when you went to Utrecht? What should you try? Um, well, Dutch, Dutch food, there's a few staples. Um, my favourite, because I went to Amsterdam a few years ago, and one is Bitterballen. I don't know if you've heard, have you heard of those. No, well, I don't know much about the Netherlands and its no. food. Um, so... They're these little like Dutch take on croquettas, really, um, and they're like, deep fried balls with a creamy veal, chopped veal filling. Mm. And sometimes they have beef as Bit well. Like arancini. Or... Yeah, yeah, that kind of that, you know, the croquettas, arancini, mm. all of that. They're really good and very, okay. very Moorish. Um, what are they called again? Sorry. Bitter balen. Bitter balen. Um, and they have got hints of nutmeg as well, and they're always served with mustard. Okay. And we had those at a really nice place called Spring Harbour on um, Spring Reg Street. And that's uh, been open since 1885, and it was a gorgeous little old old school bar, and you mm. snuggle up in there, and you have your, your microbrewery ales and, <laughs> and your bitter balen. And then another food, which is quite surprising if you don't already know about it, is Indonesian food. 
That's quite far away. Yes. So Holland is actually the best place to eat Indonesian food outside, outside of, Indonesia. of Indonesia. Really? Wow. Um, because in the 1940s, the Dutch colonised Indonesia and called it, well, it's called Dutch East Indies at the time. Right. Um, and then they've returned home and now Indonesian culture, and particularly the cuisine, has really left its mark on um, on Holland in general. How many, well, it's just so unexpected, really. I know. It, we went to a restaurant. They've got one in Amsterdam and one in um, Utrecht, and it's called Blau. It's B-L-A-U-W. And they serve these rice tables, which are just such a spectacle. So they bring about... 20, 30 tiny little dishes um, and they're laid out with um, goat skewers and chicken satay and coconut with vegetables mm. and chicken curry. It's absolutely brilliant. So, and you have nasi goreng as well, which is a really famous Indonesian dish. So you just have little bits of everything, yeah. which was really, really, really good. Sounds like a feast. Yes, it was. A good one with friends. Yes, definitely. Um, okay. What about what? What did you actually do there apart from drink microbrewery beers and <laughs> lounge in um, swings? Well, as I say, it's it's such a nice place to go when we were quite unfortunate with the weather, but every other weekend seems to have been beautiful weather so far <laughs> this year. Um, and it's a really nice place just to go and sit by the canal. And there's lots of quite a few museums actually. Um, and the Central Museum has um, an exhibition on at the moment, and it's the Rietveld Schroeder House, which for architects they will know very well. I am not really accustomed to the architecture world, but uh, I am really interested in it. And it's a UNESCO landmark um, outside of the centre, and it's really worth walking to. Okay. Um, because you can see, even if you aren't an architecture buff, you can see so many influences of even places like Ikea. I said Ikea, but I didn't want to, but she said, no, exa exactly. And all of the, you know, the filament light bulbs and all of these coffee shops yes. and exposed, um, exposed lighting. And yeah. it's all really, you can see the influences. So that's definitely worth going to. And he's then the architect. He's called Gerrit Rietveld. Mm -hmm. And he created it for Mrs. Turs Schroeder and her three children. So Aww. she was a widow. <laughs> and, um, yeah, you can see all the use of primary colours and they've got a little kitchen and you can see how, how they designed the kitchen. So that's linking it back to the food. <laughs> yeah, which is the most important part. Of course. Is this, all, yes. is this all walkable or, or do you hop on buses? Oh, no, you don't need to. You can get a bike. As in Amsterdam, there yeah. are... There are Billions of bikes everywhere, um, and it's actually you have to navigate the, the city, uh, well, the city town quite well because we're not used to maybe in London. I know there's more more bicycles now, but um, we're not used to taking that into consideration because that's the main traffic. Yeah. Um, but you can very much you can walk from one side to the other in 15 minutes. Oh wow! So there's yeah. no need for a bike really. Yeah. The only thing that is a bit further out is the Rietveld Schroeder House, but that's only about 25 minutes. So wow. yeah, no. Sounds yeah, brilliant. I really, I honestly really recommend it because it's a bit, you know, it's a bit unknown. It's a bit different. And when I said I was going. Lots of people are like, oh, where's that? And I've, I've put lots of pictures on our Instagram account and mm. people have been asking me where it is. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I really, really recommend it. I will book a ticket. Yes, yes. Thank you very much, Alex. No problem. Fermenting is one of this year's big trends in both food and drink. Here, Adam and Sarah talk kimchi, kombucha and kefir. 
Hi, so I'm Sarah, I'm Olive's drinks writer, and I'm joined by Adam, who is our lovely cookery writer. Hello. And today we are talking about fermenting, which sounds a bit of a weird thing to be talking about, but it's one of this year's kind of hottest trends, yeah. isn't it? We kind of noticed a bit of it. Last year, kimchi is becoming really widespread, and we just wanted to get kind of to the bottom of it and figure out what it's all about and why it's so popular and why it's so good for you. Yeah, okay, well... I think it has been cool for a while, but maybe not as mainstream as it is now. Like if you like, like for, for me as a cookie writer, writing recipes, things like uh, sauerkraut and mm. kefir and kombucha, you can all buy on a cardo, get from Waitrose and specialist shops now. So it's it's much easier to get hold of as a it consumer. Used to be a bit of like a not a back alley kind of thing, but you had to know the right people, you had to know where to look to get it or make well, it yourself. I think, you? I think the association would be like some sort of weirdo with loads of pots of <laughs> brewing stuff in his Lots of garage. Or, in his yeah, garage, yeah, yeah. That's sort of the association. But I just wanted to like, there's so many more things that are fermented that we don't actually think about. We think about fermenting as being, uh, yeah, like, like kimchi or sauerkraut, mm -hmm. these sort of like the like breaking down of things like it's basically like control rotting is what some people call it but it's definitely not that um, very appetizing. but yeah things like chocolate yep. is fermented coffee is fermented alcohol is a type of fermentation yep. um, and really it's just a type of preservation so it's utilizing the ingredient and making it last for longer yeah so you're totally right it is a bit of a scary word to a lot of people isn't it and yeah it's, it's you say fermenting or fermented and people think, oh, I probably shouldn't eat that. But actually, once you kind of mind over matter, get over it, yeah. then kimchi is delicious and so are all the other yeah. kind of fermented. Completely. Well, I've got, I've got a little wiki um, description of it. So it's, yeah. it's the metabolic process that converts sugars to acids, gases or alcohol. Ooh. So Sounds when you... Yeah, I mean, it sounds really fancy, but at the end of the day, you, it's, again, it's just preservation. So it might be as simple as taking a fresh cucumber yeah. and putting it in vinegar and for, like just controlled fermenting that over um, the uh, winter, say, and mm -hmm. then you've got pickled cucumbers or dill pickles or any of those things to eat. Yeah. So that's, that's a form of fermentation. And it's kind of been made popular by people like Rene Redzepi at Noma and yeah. it's that kind of preserving the seasons to use throughout the year isn't it like yeah it's a yeah really definitely. good way of getting well i think it's 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 as old as we are as real as consuming yeah, yeah really yeah um people have been doing it things like sourdough breads people mm -hmm. think that you know if you speak to your grandparents they don't like don't even know what it is they think it's some new contraption from america but that's like that was the original type of bread before uh you know a commercial yeast was invented okay so yeah, like make you create a ferment and you ferment yeah. flour and water with bacteria and yeast, and then like the natural yeast that's in the air or on the flour, and uh, to make bread. So yeah, so again another form of fermentation, which is as old as time. It's really interesting because alcohol, all alcohol starts with fermentation. Yeah, yeah, of course. As well, it's taking a sugary substance, introducing some yeast, and kind of letting the yeast do its. Yeah. do its thing and obviously the byproduct is then the alcohol it's actually, exactly. it's actually a byproduct of the yeast eating the sugar creating carbon dioxide and alcohol and all those good yeah. yummy things cast your mind back to GCSE science yeah 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 <laughs> could you could you see the gears working in my head there <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> but it's not just alcohol that that starts with fermenting there's kombucha yes which well, is massive now. would that not be slightly alcoholic in most cases because it is it's kombucha for those that don't know is fermented tea yeah, i think it's originally raw fermented tea 
You can get some alcoholic versions, but it all depends on the fermenting process. So if this is really techy and a bit geeky and very scientific. Go on, we like that, we like that. If the yeast has oxygen, yeah. then it's producing aerobic, it's right. doing aerobic respiration, yeah. which means it doesn't produce alcohol. Yeah. If you cover it and keep it in a sealed container, it's yeah. got no oxygen, then it's producing anaerobic respiration, which produces the alcohol. So with kombucha, you don't completely seal it's not mm. an airtight container. You've yeah. got like a kind of breathable cloth yeah, over yeah, it. Yeah. So it can ferment in a different way. So onto what are the health benefits? There's meant to be loads of health benefits. I mean, it's all kind of anecdotal. And yeah. we can't make disclaimer, we're not saying that kombucha is gonna cure yeah. you of all ills. But it's meant to be really good for kind of your gut health. Yeah, I think the healthy of- gut with all fermented food is because yeah. they are um full of what well good bacteria friendly bacteria friendly bacteria to, to go a little bit um sort of bought shop yeah. uh, drinking yogurt um <laughs> it's yeah full of uh healthy bacteria and the more good bacteria you have in your gut means that if bad bacteria is introduced they can basically overwhelm yeah. and basically not make that come to anything and make you really ill yeah um, in some cases i'm yeah it's also really great because it's it's a soft drink but it's not got loads of sugar in it it's pretty good for you it's pretty tasty mm-hmm. a lot of people say it tastes i think it tastes a little bit like cider yeah like a still cider you can get flavored ones there's a company called um jar kombucha which um produce out of hackney wick and they do a really amazing passion fruit one wow. which i'm a little bit addicted to yeah yeah you can get that quite widely now it's in mm-hmm. whole foods it's mm-hmm. in like all those kind of specialist health shops yeah that's definitely one to look up to look out for um, i know with um other fermented foods uh, it makes things more digestible. So like with sourdough bread, yeah. uh, it makes the carbohydrates and whatever grain you're using it, the, the fermentation process actually breaks down some of that, uh, some of those carbohydrates, which it's makes it... a little helping hand, isn't it? Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, instead of like the whole like, you know, white sliced bread, which is mm-hmm. fairly relatively indigestible, a lot yeah. of it, um, it, yeah, it makes a lot more sugars and nutrients available to you. To you. Um, it's all about making those kind of those healthier choices. And I know as readers of Olive, we're all interested in food. We don't want to eat loads of processed food. You want yeah. to try and like use the best ingredients you can. Mm-hmm. So adding fermented stuff, whether that is sauerkraut or sourdough bread or um, kimchi. Chocolate, or good chocolate. Good chocolate or, you know, a couple of bottles of kombucha a week. Yeah. Or, or in my case, a couple of bottles of wine a week, which is a yeah. fermented food. Also fermented. So <laughs> <laughs> maybe not quite as good for you, but it depends what you're measuring um, it by. Well, antioxidants yeah, and those sort of things. It's all good for you, isn't it? It's yeah. good for you. Yeah, yeah, and the reason why we're talking about this is because uh, we have a fermented section in our, um, we have some fermented recipes in our March issue out now. Yeah, we've got a brilliant um, kefir water limeade, um, which is delicious, and also kimchi, is it red cabbage kimchi? Yes, red cabbage, uh, yeah. like crouchy kimchi type thing. Yeah, so those are great kind of recipes to get you introduced to it and get you started with fermenting. Yeah, but yeah, there's a whole world to explore, I think. Yeah, let's yeah. know how you get on. Yeah, great. cheers. Thanks. Bye. Food writer Miko Davis is an expert on Italian cooking. I caught up with her this week to talk about Marema, a hidden gem on the Tuscan coast. We're really lucky uh, this week on the podcast to have Amiko Davis. Welcome, Amiko. 
Thank you for having me. <laughs> um, we've got a gorgeous feature in our March issue that Amiko's written for us, and it's based on her book, which is out now called Aquacotta, um, and it's about um, a, a, a small part of Tuscany's coastline. Um, I think it's your uh, second book, isn't this, on yes. Italy? And um, Amiko's got quite an interesting story because she's not. Um, She's actually Australian, is that right? Yeah. Um, so how did you come to fall in... I mean, we all fall in love with Italy in some way, but how did you come to fall in love with it so much that you've written two books about it? Um, well, the first thing that actually brought me to Italy was art, fine art, which I was studying um, as uh, as my undergrad. And I came to Florence uh, my third year of university um, to study etching and I absolutely fell in wow. love with the city. And That's such a romantic yeah. sounding <laughs> degree to do. Well, I mean. Yeah, I actually came back again um, after I finished um, my my degree to study art restoration. Okay. And um, that was uh, in 2005, January 2005, when I came back the second wow. time. And, uh, and that time was was basically for good. I I spent the first year that I was there studying art restoration yeah. and um, that was amazing as well. Um, and then at the end of that year I, I met um, my husband and he's the main reason why I stayed all the okay. following all years. All the good reason. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. how did you jump from, I mean, actually I did a fine art degree so and I, and, I'm like, <laughs> and I work for a food magazine now. So, But how did you jump from um, art to cookery or um, um, writing it sounds books. it sounds like two completely different worlds and <laughs> yeah, in, a it way, it, in a way yeah. it is um but I've I've come to realize that um for me uh you know working on an etching let's say or mm. working in a dark room I was also um doing darkroom photography um teaching darkroom photography when I first came to Florence um I I really or baking I, I really like the process process of, yeah um of doing those things. And you're creating something as yes, well. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, so what basically happened was after I finished my um, art restoration degree, that was a three-year degree, uh, I started working in a photography museum in Florence. Yeah. Um, a really wonderful job, really dream job actually, yes, yeah. in terms of art restoration. <laughs> um, but they, it, the, the pay was so, so terribly right. bad that I had to move. We, we had to move in with my mother-in-law and then that... Um, I just realised this was just not going to work. Oh, this dream wow. job oh, couldn't afford to pay for the rent in Florence. Yeah. <laughs> so I ended up working, um, just getting another job yeah. in, um, in a reception, uh, just sitting behind a desk and uh, that was so, so mind-numbingly boring yeah. for me that um, I needed something else to do. Yeah. So I, I started writing a food blog and that's where the food <laughs> writing came yeah. in because I think um, the process of... Uh, writing the process of cooking cooking and then writing yeah. which bo- both things I've always had a passion for I just never knew how to make a job out of it. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, that whole process of the I don't know having the food blog and yeah. writing photographing and um, doing all the cooking that's uh, where that passion yeah. then sort of steered towards doing doing that and I see them all sort of as a very um very different things, but coming from a similar yeah. desire to create something and um, and, and I know be you constantly creating. You you married an Italian man, but um, Italians are quite notorious for being exacting about their recipes and their food. So, yeah. how did you feel as a kind of Australian interloper in the um, in the cuisine? Um, 
I think I'm, I'm kind of lucky because when um, when I first met my husband, he had never ever cooked anything on his own ever. Well, never cooked anything at all. Um, and because is that because his mum did all the yeah. cooking? <laughs> well, more than his mum, it was his his nonna and um, oh, his grandmother. Okay, um, died just two months before I met him, and he had just moved out of home. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so. Um, you have big boots to fill. Uh, yeah, well, the thing is that he had been living with his grandmother and his parents, mm. so everybody, multi-generational household, um, this whole entire time. Not only had he never needed to cook, but yeah. his grandmother, I think, was quite protective of her kitchen. Um, she wouldn't even let my mother-in-law do much cooking. So oh, no. as a result, my mother-in-law is not a fabulous cook. Um, <laughs> she was definitely, everybody in the family always talks about how the grandmother was the... Yeah, the, the absolute star yes. of the kitchen. So um, the first time I ever cooked something for um, for Marco, my husband, um, I, I literally had nothing in the fridge. I had, was living in this tiny shoebox of an apartment that only had one <laughs> burner on the stove, one hob yeah. um, to cook on and a tiny mini bar as a fridge. So I, be- I <laughs> oh, barely had anything in it. And you really um, got to get we decided to have like an impromptu <laughs> yeah. dinner at home. And so all I had was some broccoli and some pasta and a bit of garlic, I think, and I um, I made uh, a pasta out of it yeah. and he took one bite and he said, I'm going to marry you. Oh, my God, that's so romantic. <laughs> so I, think, um, I think he was quite oh, impressed that I could... Yeah. Um, make something out of seemingly nothing yeah. and um, after that he got really interested in cooking as well and he um, he started um, asking his uh, his mum for recipes and he started watching video oh, recipes and he's a, so now, he's a fantastic him. cook and uh, I love that. he does most of the cooking at home now because I do most of the cooking during the week yeah uh, you know for work I'm usually testing recipes yeah, and that yeah, sort yeah. of thing um, and then and then when he comes home from work, he likes to cook to relax. So he yeah. takes over when he's home and does oh. all the cooking. And you got a good home. one. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us about um, aquacotta and and especially about uh, Marema, which is or Marema, which is the um, the region that you're talking about um, in in the feature and in your book. Um, what's what is it about that drew you to that kind of region? Um, well, first of all, we uh, my husband got a job. In Marema, um, he's a sommelier, and um, we moved um, to Porto Ercole, which is um, a little fishing village uh, on a really beautiful promontory mm. in the southernmost part of Tuscany. Wow. And it was only a six-month, um, so se- seasonal, seasonal jobs. Yeah. So six months we were there in 2015, and I had we had been there before on holiday. It's really beautiful and um, just surrounded by seaside and um, lagoons and really wonderful, rugged, very sort of wild um, countryside. Yeah. Lots of um, mountains and forests oh, yeah, and that sort yeah. of thing. Um, and uh, so it's it's exquisitely beautiful. But when we moved there and we were actually living there and I was sort of looking at the place through the eyes of someone living there, yeah. um, I fell even more in love with oh. it because, I mean, it's beautiful enough as a as a visitor, but yeah. even living there was, was um, yeah, it was really special. And um, so I, I basically contacted my publisher and I said, you need to hear about this place yeah. because it is so beautiful, but also the food is so interesting and it's so very, very different from what people know what um, Tuscan food to okay. be. Um, even in terms of um, 
the difference between Florence, for example, where my in-laws are from and where we have been living, uh, the difference between Florence and this corner of Maremma yeah. was, was so uh, vast <laughs> that so I, what... would, I would bring back pastries and biscuits to my mother-in-law <laughs> from, from our home And she'd be town. quite surprised at well, what, she yeah. Was, yeah, she'd be like, what, what are these? Biscuits I've never seen or heard of these things ever before. And, and um, you know, we're still in Tuscany, mm. but it was just so very different. So for people who think they've got an idea of what Tuscan food is, what, what is, like, Marema, what, what would be the, the kind of things you would get to, to eat when you... Uh... So Marema stretches um, along a lot of the coast of Tuscany. Okay. And it also goes inland into that oh, wonderful okay. wild sort of countryside. Yeah. So what you have is this mixture of um, basically of sea and mountains, so um, you've got all of the fishing villages along yeah. the coast. There's really wonderful seafood from that area. Yeah. Um, a lot of seafood that comes in um, only to that that part of the Mediterranean. Okay. Um, and then also you've got this um, this forest area where you can um, well traditionally and, and even now a lot of people still do it. You can forage for wild mushrooms. Okay. And um, and there's lots of wild herbs, wild. Okay. Um, chicory and oh, salad leaves wow. even, uh, wild asparagus mm. and um, and then you've also got all of the all of the wild animals. I was going to say, so, is it game? Is yes, game a big deal yeah, as well? Is, yeah, it is. So um, wild boar is probably one of the major symbols mm. of the Marema. Um, they're just everywhere. <laughs> and so, and so as a result, they're in a lot of the dishes. And um, uh, there's also deer. Um, in in Argentaria where we were living, there were deer on the beach. Yeah. So. so it really is um, people people who are living there are really living from the sea and the land, and and yeah. whatever they're cooking, it it's 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 local to the extreme, right? It's like basically what they yeah what what's landing up on their plates is what's coming into port or what's being exactly. like hunted in the forest exactly. or being foraged in the forest. Yeah. So it's like a real honest kind of eating. It it is it is and. Um, it has for a long time been that sort of cushina povera that, um, you know, literally translates to poor in yeah. your pe- peasant cooking. It doesn't sound poor but when, no, you, when, you, when you say it. It's very rich in terms yeah. of the variety yeah, of ingredients. Yeah, yeah. Um, you've got lots of also chestnuts from the forest as wow. well, so that chestnuts form um, a large part of the, the base of um, mm. desserts and savoury dishes. So you can find it in soup or you'll find it in um, in turned into flour and made into... Uh, cakes oh yeah that's lovely um so yeah it is a really and then there's lots of really um delicious fruit grown in that area okay um so some of the best um melons i've ever tasted (laughs) um come from marema really melons oh yeah yeah, you just wouldn't think melon when you think lots of fig trees and um it does sound really lush and rich and kind of what would Mm. be probably could you pick a favorite dish that you've come across that you've discovered writing your book like that comes oh specifically gosh, from the so I'm sorry many. really put you on the spot there <laughs> um, or maybe two or three because yeah the, okay I'll give you a couple because there are there are so many yeah. so um I'm I'm a big lover of seafood yeah me too. and um so living in living in Puerto Rico was just a dream come yeah. true because you could you could get fresh seafood right off of the fishing so it's boats literally land, in landing evening. and you're buying from the boat yeah yeah <laughs> it's like it's like it sounds like a dream yeah really <laughs> so you've got these um um wonderful um they're called mantis shrimp in english yeah um they've got about 20 different names in italian depending on which region you go to but um spernocchi or cicali di mare they're called and um they're rather spiky and difficult to get into okay um but you can boil them 
and then and then shell them and take out what's sort of there's not a lot of meat in it sounds like really like sweet kind of flesh and yeah they're very flavorful so when you cook them whole with the shell um they just sort of multiply the flavor by a a billion (laughs) so they're just they're delicious to use whole in particular um but uh so you cut out all of the meat which isn't a lot it's a little bit like sweet like lobster yeah i was thinking that i kind of and then, um, and then you boil spaghetti in the pasta in the water. Sorry, in the water where uh, you had boiled the shrimp. So it transfers it the flavor the to flavor. the pasta. Yeah. yeah, and then you just toss it all together with the, the meat and a bit of olive oil and some chili, and um, that's a really that classic dishroom. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it's it's a good example of not wasting no. anything. So you're and really keeping it really simple. Because exactly. why would you need to mess with exactly. something that sounds that great? Yeah. I mean, sounds like you need to get your kind of gloves on to stop breaking into yeah, them a little bit they've got like these little armored bodies with yeah. um with hidden sort of thorns underneath them so yeah they're and a bit tricky but... and what's your favorite wild boar thing because you said that um, comes yes. in a lot of things. so um a wild boar um so there's you, there's many different dishes and you can eat them you can eat it as a stew usually mm-hmm. and um either on pasta or just on its own uh with some bread or even with some polenta um but there's a dish called um cinghiale in dolce forte mm-hmm. which is um uh basically like a sometimes they translate that as a sweet and sour sauce um and it's made with chocolate and cocoa and wow. candied orange uh, mixed into the stew and it's got a, a bit of vinegar that kind of cuts through the richness. Yes, so it yes. sounds like really deep and rich and kind of yes, the thing that you would... very silky and absolutely just one of the most delicious things I've ever tasted. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it's got a lot of spices in it. So it's a dish that um, um, goes back probably to um, about <clears> the Renaissance when yeah. they use lots of spices and candied fruit mm. together with game. Um, and then the, the chocolate just makes it uh, just incredible so when you were writing how did you what was your process for kind of gathering the recipes were you looking at other books were you um talking to local cooks what was a mixture of everything it was a bit of a mixture but I found it was really difficult to find cookbooks from that area yeah um when we were more like word of mouth yeah yeah. exactly because when we arrived in Puerto Eco I went to the main um the main bookshop in town I mean it's a really really tiny fishing village so the bookshop was was um really really tiny sort of news agent Mm. that happened to have books and I asked the shopkeeper if he had any books local of the local cuisine and he pulled down this book and gave it to me and it said cucina italiana (laughs) completely general (laughs) (laughs) yeah so I realized that it was going to be really difficult to find um any books about the kind of recipes that I wanted to write about so uh yeah I made friends with um um, the local fishmonger whose yeah. family fishing boat comes oh, in every wow. evening into Porto Erco and she um, she was very um, lovely about giving me some ideas. For... So happy to share yeah, the knowledge. That's yeah. great. That's I mean, really nice to kind of... I did still have to figure out yeah. a lot of how to make the actual recipe yeah. because sometimes the description was only um, really just a sentence. <laughs> but but they are very simple preparations. Yeah. Um, so it was really more about having the idea of what yeah. kind of things. Um, also because in that area it's, you don't um, really find as many restaurants that are still making the traditional dishes okay. anymore. Um, 
a lot of the restaurants are sort of catering to what people want to eat when they come to the seaside. Okay. So there's lots of fresh fish, but not necessarily <clears throat> in um, the, the local dishes. Way. Yeah. How many recipes are in the book? There are 80 recipes. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's a beautiful book, Aquacotta, and I think it's published uh, this month by Hardy Grant. Um, I urge everyone to go out and buy it. It's absolutely beautiful. And I think you've started a stampede down to uh, <laughs> the Tuscan coast this, yeah. uh, this summer, Amiko. Yeah. But um, thank you very much for coming to and talking to us and sharing all that Thank knowledge. I'm sure me. everyone's going to love it. Um, all right, thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Olive Magazine podcast. If you like this episode, please don't forget to go review and rate us on iTunes. For more information on things in this episode, head to our website, olivemagazine.com. You can pick up a copy of our packed March issue now from News Agents. April's out next week. Or you can download the app version. Bye for now and we'll be back next week with even more food chat.